0: In just a minute, Brad's going to come up, but I want to tell you a little bit about um, Brad Williams. Jared and Ann have known him for many years. They actually recruited him when he was a college pastor in Phoenix, Arizona, to come and be part of Foursquare and church planning. And he's done a lot since then and uh, is actually a lead pastor in Spokane now. He's part of our North Pacific district, the lead team there. And I had the privilege of seeing Brad in October at a conference and absolutely Loved hearing him, and I actually went to a couple of his workshops. And I just, I—he's an an amazing communicator. But what I, what, what um, caught my attention was how he lives life inside and outside of the church, just loving others. It was very inspirational for me. So, would you please give a giant round of applause and welcome Brad Williams today? (laughs) Well, thank you, Kim, so much. And it's so good to be here with everybody today. I was talking to a few friends today, and it's been, i like, the last time I was here was like five years ago. So uh, it has been a while, and a lot of things have changed. In fact, I was asking Brad, I said, you know, were you here then and then and then? And he's like, no, like, all the people you knew that were here back then, they're gone now. And then Isaac Hovitt shows up this morning, and I'm like, well, he's here. He's here for me, so it's great. So good to see Isaac, and, and uh, good to be here with you guys. Jared and Ann have had such a huge influence on my life. Uh, In fact, I told a couple of people this morning when I was 21 years old, I wrote them a letter and I invited them to speak into my life at any level. I just said, I'm going to give you permission for the rest of my life. Like you can speak into my life. You can ask me any question, challenge me, do whatever you want. Boy, was that a mistake, (laughs) right? No, it's been awesome. They've had uh, had a profound influence. And uh, I used to listen to Jared preaching. I used to listen to tapes and uh, Jared taught me so much. Uh, Unfortunately, in that process, I also learned uh, a really good Jared impersonation. <clears throat> and at our classic service this morning, yeah, I, I asked them and they like, everyone demanded and they were like, you've got to do it. And so, uh, so are you just, are you guys, you guys want it? My Jared? Okay. All right. So you might want to like, I don't look like Jared, obviously. He's a lot thinner than I am, but, uh, but I kind of sound a little bit like him. So you're ready. Here it is. It is so good to see all of you in this wonderful place today. What an amazing privilege it is. All of your beautiful faces shining here today. Yeah. There you go. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't know that I do this. All right. So don't tell him. Okay. Let's just keep that between us. I don't, I don't want anyone to know, but um, you know, you can learn a lot about people based on the stories that they tell, right? Uh, Somebody tells a story and you get to know them. You get to know their personality. You hear what, what they like to talk about, um, it's fascinating because um, Jesus told a lot of stories, and, and it's, it's interesting, and I know in this series, a little story with a big idea, this series, um, we've really been talking about the stories of Jesus, and what's fascinating is that a third of the teaching of Jesus actually came through stories. Kind of an interesting thing, right? That Jesus told stories. He told stories for the same reason that we tell stories, because there was a point, there was something he was trying to get across. Uh, we tell stories oftentimes for a very simple point. That's to entertain people, right? And, and certainly with Jesus, there was a dynamic to his stories that was very engaging and very entertaining. But there was another layer to the stories of Jesus. There was always a point to what Jesus was talking about. And those points often are far deeper truths that we need to understand, not only about ourselves, but they also give us a window into who Jesus actually is. They tell us about Jesus. And I think that's an important thing for us. Um, I think the vast majority of people's misunderstanding about Jesus and the church and Christians today is not the result of their lack of education. I think it's the result of people who know Jesus or say they know Jesus that really don't know Jesus. So I think for a lot of us, the consequences of us not knowing Jesus means that there's, there's irreparable damage that happens in our relationships. There's things we say. There's a represent, representation that we give to people about Jesus that oftentimes isn't connected to Jesus. And so I think knowing Jesus is one of the critical things for us as Christians, not just for our own lives, but for the lives of people around us. For people to see Jesus in us, I think is critically important. And so these stories um, that we've been unpacking in this series... Are incredibly important. They matter. And a proper understanding of what Jesus was talking about beneath the surface is critical for us. So this one that we're looking at today, the story of the prodigal son or the prodigal sons, I think there's a profoundness to the story that most of us um, wouldn't even imagine. Um, Before we dive into it, I want to just conduct a little bit of a poll. I'm just going to have a little bit of fun just for a moment and just talk about a few things. Actually, have you be honest in church just for a moment. (laughs) All right, so you're kind of getting where we're going with this. I want to take a poll on your driving habits. Those of you that drive, I want to talk about your driving for just a minute. I know some of you are nervous. We're not going to talk about texting and driving. We already know you do that. We've seen you. or talking on your phone and driving. We know you do these things. Stop it. Drives us crazy, you're going to hurt somebody. I want to talk about something different, all right? I want you to think about the way that you drive. And I want you to first think about this. If you're a Monday through Friday kind of worker, or whatever your week is, you know, if you start work on Friday and work till Thursday, whatever, you know, the next whatever. If you're like always working, whatever. But I want you to think about your work week. And I want you to think about how you drive. Maybe your school week, whatever it is. I want you to think about how you drive on your way to work on Monday morning, if you're a Monday through Friday person. And now I want you to think about how you drive on Friday, on your way home from work. How many of you drive a little differently in those two situations? Let's admit it, right? The music's a little different. Like on Monday, you're like rocking out, you're cranking, you're getting pumped up. And like on, you know, like on Friday, it's Bob Marley, right? You're like, all right, it's all right. I'm just chilling out, right? Everybody's, everybody's all right. You're letting people in traffic on Monday. You're like, you're not getting in here. And on Friday, you're like, go ahead. What's the hurry, Right? Is a difference how about this one? I want you to think about your driving habits with this. How many of you drive differently when the person that that you're like intimate with like your, your you know your best friend, your brother, your sister, your spouse, that person that's like one of your closest friends, do you drive differently when that person and you have just had an argument or a fight or when you're just riding in the car having a great time together? Anyone drive differently? come on oh they let. There's six honest people at Evergreen. That's what I'm realizing. Either that is only six people that drive, right? Because that's the deal, right? Like, you're talking to your friend. You're getting along. You're just driving. You're cruising along. You get an argument, and all of a sudden, it's, I mean, where do we get the phrase, don't drive angry? Because we drive angry, right? Someone upsets us, and so we drive kind of angry, right? All right, th- th- third thing here, last one. How many, of you, how many of you drive differently when you're showing up early someplace, like 10, 15 minutes, and when you're running late? Yeah. Okay. Finally, some honesty, right? You drive different, right? So I just want to tell you this. So uh, a a while back, like six or seven weeks ago, I was out on on a bike ride. I was out by Newburgh, up by Bald Peak. I was out on a bike ride just by myself, kind of cruising along uh, one of the country roads out there. And as I was rolling along on my bike, I heard this like whir, this like beautiful sound of an Italian engine behind me. And I could just tell, you know, there was like this deep throaty word of the motor. And I could just tell, man, this is going to be a beautiful car. And so I'm riding along. And obviously, you know, it's kind of maybe blocking the road the way bike riders do. And and I'm thinking, well, at some point, you know, this person's going to pass. And I couldn't wait to see, like, what is this car? Because it sounded beautiful. Sure enough, as I'm riding along, this guy starts to, he's there for a while. And then very slowly, I listen to him accelerate. The car builds speed and comes around me real slowly. And it is this gorgeous red Ferrari, like beautiful car, and the guy driving the epitome of a midlife crisis. Like, absolutely quintessential. Like, you could have named the car the crisis. That's what you could have named the car. So he comes by, and as he rolls by, he looks at me and kind of gives me the head nod, and I look at him, and give him the head nod, you know, all right? And so then I'm expecting what we all would expect, and that's that as he gets around me, I'm expecting, like, carbon monoxide, fumes, gasoline emissions. I'm expecting he's going to throttle it, because that's what I would do in this moment, right? Show off the vulgar display of power, right? (laughs) Unbelievably, this guy gets around me and just kind of gets in front and barely, I mean, he's barely going faster than I am. And that's not because I'm fast on a bike. He's just cruising along. And he just rolls along this country road for about a quarter mile or a half a mile until finally he disappears around the corner. And I just, I mean, I was so struck by this. And suddenly this thought hit me. I thought, this guy is not on his way to work. <laughs> right? because you don't drive like that on your way to work, do you, right? Now, contrast that to this. I was in downtown Portland. I was trying to park in downtown Portland, and I was like kind of, you know, like, mixing up and going different places, trying to find a spot on the street. And at one point, I, I pulled into a spot, and then I realized it's not where I wanted to be, so I suddenly pulled out. And when I pulled out, I hear this blaring of horns. And as I hear the blaring of horns, I also hear yelling, like the kind of yelling that you can hear inside your car that's happening inside another car, like. Like, whoever this person is, is really angry. So I I looked over my shoulder, and I'm getting the one-finger salute from this guy driving a Prius. And I was so struck by it. I was like, who drives a Prius in a hurry? Like, is that even a thing? Like, what is that? And so I I actually laughed. Like, I looked at him, and I laughed, like, out loud. I got the double-fingered salute. Like, I got both fingers. He was, like, driving with his knees just to express his frustration and anger with me. I was like, oh, my gosh. And so... So we, so what do we have? We have, we have? we have slow Ferraris and we have fast Prius, which is the plural form of Prius. Slow Ferraris and fast Prius. Some of you, that, that's a, like a drive home one. You'll get that later. And you start to realize that, it, that maybe it's not the car. Maybe it's the person behind the wheel of the car, right? Maybe it's what's going on with that person who's driving the car. All of us have been given this thing called a life, All of us have been given a life. Some of us, we have a beautiful red Ferrari sort of life. And others of us, we've been given a Prius life. Most of us, we've been given like a 1983 Honda sort of life, (laughs) right? But we've all been given a life. The question is not what life you've been given. The question is what is driving your life? What is behind the wheel of your life is what really matters. And here's what's fascinating. If you start looking at all the lives of people, you look at all the men, all the women in this room, everybody, if you look at everyone with all of our different stories, all of our different styles and kinds of life, all of our backgrounds, what's fascinating is that if you boil down what's driving us as people, what is driving every single human being on the planet is one of three things. That's that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about three ways that we can actually live. In fact, first of all, I want to introduce these things to you. These are the motives of our heart. These are the motives that are driving our life. And I want to talk about these things. And then what I want us to do is consider which one's driving us. So, so three things. You can be your own savior the irreligious way. You can be your own savior the religious way. Or you can let God be your savior in the way of grace. Those are the three motives. And and here's why this is so important. Two of these don't work. Two of these, if if it's the way that we're choosing, two of these are what cause the disintegration in our lives and our relationships. It's what causes the dysfunction in our family. It's what causes the disruption in our society. Two of these cause our frustration, our disappointment, our, our, our depression, our discouragement. Two of these simply don't work. And so it's essential that we understand them because there are nuances to each of these that all of us may find ourselves living in. There may be a part of us that's being driven by one of these things and one of these things might be why we're in the situation the season that we're in the circumstances that we're in so here's, here's the scene. The story that we've just watched a moment ago is a scene that actually um, developed a few weeks ago when Rick was teaching and talking out of, out of Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is fascinating because Jesus is gathering crowds. They're listening to him teach. And as he gathers people around him, the various people who are listening are sort of, they're caught in this contradiction of sorts because Jesus is gathering people who are sinners and tax collectors as they're referred to in scriptures. They're people who are very far from God, people who are very different from Jesus, were people that Jesus found himself hanging out with. Jesus hung out with people who were different than he was. That was a conundrum for them. They were like, Jesus, why are you hanging out with us? Like, if you're all about God... God has never been all about us. And so why are you with us? So it was confusing to them. It was also confusing to the religious people because religious people were all about God. And when Jesus said he was there on behalf of God, they assumed he was there to be with them because they were the ones that were serious about God. So there's confusion for the, for the Pharisees, for the religious. Why are you hanging out with people who are not like you? You should be hanging around with people like us. So in Luke 15, Jesus tells three stories, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and then this story of two sons. And these stories not only tell us a lot about Jesus, they also tell us a lot about us and how Jesus understands our hearts. So this is the story of the prodigal son, oftentimes called. It's really the story of two sons and two different kinds of prodigals. And I want you to see this as we walk through this. If you have your Bible, it's Luke chapter 15. If you don't have one, the words are on the screen. Just listen with me with this. Luke 15, it says, There was a man, this is Jesus saying this, he goes, there's a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he would spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Two sons, this is son number one, the younger brother. The younger brother comes to the father and he says, give me a share. We know this, right? We've already seen this. Give me a share. But this is what we don't understand. When the younger son comes to the father and he says, give me the share of my inheritance, what he's literally saying is, I wish you were dead. Because in that culture, the way that a son received the inheritance was the passing of the father. And so this son is essentially saying, I don't really care about you or your life. What I care about is me getting your stuff. And so that's what the younger brother says. Unbelievably, the father gives it to him. It says not many days later, he gathers up his stuff. He goes to a foreign country, separates himself in relationship. That's the point. It's not about you. It's about the stuff. It's about my life. It's about me getting what I want. And then it says he was impoverished. He's desperate. So he becomes a slave to this foreign country. This is a cultural statement that's being made. Jesus says this. These religious leaders who who can't figure out Jesus... When Jesus says that he became a slave, this is an occupied nation. The people of Israel are occupied by the Roman Empire at this time, and there was nothing worse than being a slave to another nation. And so this is despicable. He he allows himself to be a servant of this foreign man. Then it says that he's finding himself with the pigs, living with an unclean animal in the perspective of the Jews, and longing not to eat pigs, but to eat what they ate. So it is this like cultural statement, like this guy is a mess. This guy's a a, a wreck. He's he's totally like disrespecting and 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 disorderly. He's nasty, he's corrupt on every level. And so the point like of this, when Jesus is saying this, all the religious people are listening and they're like, man, they they can't stand this guy at this point. They despise him and he has them right where he wants them. Listen to this, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against you, sinned against heaven, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he's like, I'm going to go home. I'm sure when he said this, like the Pharisees were like, yeah, you let him come home. <laughs> let him come home and we will take him outside the woodshed the way his father should have, right? Like you're going to come home? This is unbelievable. And then verse 20, it says he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So the father ran to him. Hold on to that. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father says, Listen, I'm not gonna accept you back as a servant. I'm gonna get my robe. I'm gonna get my best robe. And we are going to have a feast. And I'm gonna call all my neighbors, the one I was embarrassed to talk with because of your actions, I'm gonna invite them over to our house and I'm gonna show them my son came home. I'm going to celebrate you. I'm going to throw a party, just like the party the shepherd threw when he found the one sheep, just like the party that the woman threw when she found the one coin. I'm going to throw a party for you because the son who was dead is alive. The son who was lost has been found. That's the first son. That's the younger brother. Next few verses, we meet the older brother, the second son. Listen to this. It says in verse 25, that his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. And then check out the father again. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The older brother says, You didn't even give me a goat, right? And the father says, You've always been with me, and everything I have is yours. The God character, by the way, is the father in this story, in case you were wondering about this. And the God character, which is always in the parables of Jesus, the father says, you've always been with me. And if you read on at this point, the story says that the, the older brother just goes, oh, dad, I'm sorry. Can I get you a soda? And he went over to the ice chest and like threw him a soda and the dad grabbed him and put him in a headlock and he gave him a noogie and he said, you're such a knucklehead. Come on, let's go party. No, that's actually not how the story goes. The story actually ends right here. The story ends in a tension. The story ends unresolved. And I know for me, when I look at these kinds of stories and I think, why does Jesus leave it unresolved? Why would he tell the story to these people who are so confused and not bring it into a nice little bow and finish it for them? Why does he not resolve it? Because of this. The resolution isn't supposed to happen in the story. The resolution is supposed to happen in us. The resolution of the story doesn't happen in them. The resolution of the story happens in us. See, these two sons, they represent two ways to live that do not work. The first son represents the irreligious life. Look look at what he's doing. Look at the first glance. What do we see? I mean, church people see this really clearly, right? Religious people, we know what the irreligious life looks like, right? It's partying, it's prostitutes, it's pleasure. But there's more to the younger brother than just what we see on the surface. There's something else going on. It's not just, hey, I want to go have a good time with my friends. There's something deeper going on. There's something in his soul. He is showing us a life that is irrespective of God, and when you choose to live a life irrespective of God, you are putting yourself in the primary driver's seat of your life. It is all about you. Living life in this way is living without God and in disregard to his direction. It is a life of self-discovery and self-indulgence. So so this is what irreligion says. This first way of living says this. It says, I don't have to obey anyone but myself. Irreligion says, I don't have to obey anyone but me. Sound familiar? (laughs) It should, right? I mean, the younger brother is alive and well in our culture. I mean, this is the theme of our culture. This is how humanity is wired, left to our own devices, we will choose one of three ways, but this one is one that comes very easily, especially to us as Americans. Where does this begin? It begins with our rights. It begins with me demanding what I deserve. That's what the younger brother starts with. It is about what I have coming to me. The younger brother comes to the father and asks for his inheritance. He's saying, listen, this is what I deserve and then I'm gonna get what I deserve and I'm gonna spend it on me. It is about me getting what I want about my way and look where it gets him. Look where it lands him. His life's a mess. He loses it all and nothing that he asked for, nothing that he longed for, not one bit of the inheritance mattered to him when it was all said and done. None of it mattered. That's one way to live. The older brother shows us something else. The younger brother, he's showing us how to be our own savior irreligiously. Save yourself, but do it without God. The older brother shows us something very interesting. He shows us how to be our own savior, but to do it religiously. And I think this is poignant for us church people. What is religion? Well, religion or moralism is working very hard to be incredibly good and obey God's laws so that you can feel like God owes you. That's ultimately what religion is, right? Religion says this. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. That's what religion says. I obey, And if I do the right things, if I jump through the hoops, then God's going to accept me. It's like this. The religious heart gets a contract out and says, God, here's the deal. I'm going to do my part, and then you're going to do your part. And if I behave a particular way, then you're going to respond a particular way. And we create this cause and effect relationship where God is not directing us. We're directing God with our own behavior. I do the right things, God, and then you're supposed to do this. And it's like a contract. It's expectations that we have. When the, father brings, when the father brings the younger brother back, this is what's fascinating because you see the heart of this. When the father brings the younger brother back and he throws this party for him, the, the older brother's furious. He's so angry. And, and if you're like me, you wonder, why is the older brother so angry? Here's why he's mad. He's angry because when the younger brother has squandered all of his inheritance and the father says, come get the ring and get the robe and get the shoes and let's have a barbecue. When the father says to take all of these things, who's he taking those things from? The older brother, right? If the younger brother got his inheritance, then everything that was left was eventually the older brother's. So when the father says, bring me that calf, well, that's the older brother's calf. When he says, bring me that ring, that's the older brother's ring. That robe, those shoes, those things belong to the older brother. And what does this reveal? It reveals that his heart is no different than his younger brother. He wasn't there for the father. He was there for the father's things. He was just going about it a different way. That's why when he comes out, you know, and the father comes out and, and says, Come join me in the feast. And he says, Why don't you come in here? What does he say? He says, Listen, I've lived a good life. I've obeyed you. I've done what I am supposed to do. I checked all the boxes. I showed up at church. I tithed. I volunteered. I did all this stuff. You owe me. See, many people think they're a Christian and yet they have no sense of the reality of God in their lives. What they have is a deep sense of religiosity. They're looking at the fact that they live good lives, and that's where they find their morality. They look at the fact that they keep up their end of the bargain, and that's where they find their self-worth. That's where they find their value. It's in their own moral performance. It's what I do, and whatever God does is based on what I do. And where does it get people like that? If you live religiously, if you live in this, you know where you end up? You end up bitter and angry, just like the older brother. That's why Jesus tells the story, because religious people end up bitter and angry. They're bitter and angry at others. They're bitter and angry at God because he didn't keep up his half of the deal. I've never heard anybody say of these two brothers, I really want to be the older brother when my life is over. No one ever says that, right? Because no one wants to be bitter and angry. And it turns out that there isn't much of a difference between saving ourselves through irreligion as there is between saving ourselves through religion. One son was lost far from home, and one son was lost right at home. That's why Jesus tells the story. You don't know me. You don't know what I'm about. Let me tell you a story that's going to help you understand. And that's when we see the third way. The third way, or the gospel, is us looking to God for life, for salvation, for meaning, for purpose, Religion and irreligion are still about you and what you do to save yourself, but the gospel is something that is completely different. It is something completely other. This is what the gospel says. The gospel says, I'm accepted by God, and I live in response to that acceptance. Do you see the difference? I'm loved. God's given me grace. He's brought me in, and that changes everything. Me living out of a heart that's motivated by the love that's already been expressed to me, that is radically different than the other two options. It is no longer about me. It is no longer about my efforts. It doesn't matter what I do. It's about what God has done for me. That's what matters, that changes everything. Grace changes everything. We live out of that grace, out of that understanding of what God has done. Now, how do we actually do that? Beautifully, the story shows this to us. We experience it this way. First of all, you have to to recognize the initiating love of the Father. I paused both times in both stories to point this out to you and so that you'd see this, but in both circumstances, it's the Father who initiates. It's the Father who comes It's the father who runs out on the road and meets the son. It's the father who goes out and leaves the party and goes to the older brother. The father initiates. The father comes to us. He initiates. He's longing for us. The whole story of the cross is the father saying, I I, I want you to be a part of this. So we acknowledge that God's the one that's coming to us, not us coming to him. And secondly, we need to learn to repent. Repent. That word repent is an interesting one. In our culture, there's not a lot of people that like the word repent for a lot of reasons. And and the truth is, they don't like it because they don't understand it. Because repent simply means that we're moving a particular direction in our life. Maybe we're moving religiously in one direction. Maybe we're moving irreligiously like the younger brother in our life. And suddenly we have this change of understanding and we turn and now we move towards God. That's what the word repent means. Literally, it's just this acknowledgement that I'm moving in the wrong direction and I need to turn. We see it with with the younger brother. It's very clear. He says, like, what have I done? I just, like, I know that I've headed in the wrong direction. I'm turning. I'm coming back to the father. We need to confess of those things that we've done. We need to repent of our brokenness, the path where we just choose to live for our rights and our way. But we also need to repent of our good, good deeds and our good stuff. Literally, what is keeping the older brother from the feast is not his bad deeds. It's as much his pride and his good deeds. We need to repent of both of these. We need to acknowledge that anything I'm doing to earn this out of myself, to get what I want or earn God's favor... Either one of those are worthy of repentance. We need to keep repenting and keep going to God and saying, left to my own devices, I'll pursue one of these two ways. And then third and finally, we need to see what it costs God to bring us home. We need to see what it costs God to bring us home. When the the father brought the younger son in, he, he embraced him. And he put this robe on him, and he put the ring on his finger, the family ring that said, You're in the family. And he put the shoes on his feet. And he took the, took the calf and he barbecued. He he welcomed in him. But remember, this all belonged to the older brother. It's why he was so angry. It was a part of his inheritance. But you know what a good older brother would have done? a good older brother would have seen his younger brother coming and would have seen his father gathering up his robes and he would have beat him there, right? Because he was younger and faster, right? He would have gathered up his robes and he would have passed his dad on the road and he would have grabbed his brother. He would have thrown his arm. A good older brother would have thrown his arms around his little brother, right? And he'd have turned back to his dad and said, dad, dad, go get my robe, Go get that robe, like that one you're going to give me. Go get the family ring. Start a barbecue. Let's get our family and friends. Let's get everybody here. Dad, get this thing started. Dad, isn't that what a good older brother would have done? This story doesn't have a good older brother, does it? But our story does. Our story does have a good older brother. We have the true older brother in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is stripped naked so that we could wear a robe of righteousness. Jesus Christ on a cross is cast out so that we could be brought in to the family. Jesus Christ on a cross paying a penalty for our sin so that we don't have to pay a penalty and can be brought home. That's what it cost to bring us home. And we will never stop being irreligious and we will never stop being religious until we understand the depths at which it cost our heavenly father to bring us home. Not until we understand who our older brother is, not until we see Jesus and all that he's given up for us and we acknowledge the grace and the love and the mercy that has been poured out to us, will we ever discontinue our irreligiosity or religiosity. That's what it takes. See, the gospel isn't religion. And the gospel isn't irreligion. The gospel isn't morality or immorality. The gospel is something completely different altogether. It is you and I acknowledging that we are so broken that somebody has to die for us. And yet we are so loved that somebody actually does. And in the moment of that realization, there is something that happens in our hearts. There's this pull. There's this drawing in. There is this desire for relationship with the Father that is this thing called grace. And that's what Jesus was opening up to us. Amen? Would you pray with me? Jesus, getting to know your heart for us, so overwhelming. We live in a culture of striving. We're either striving for things that we think we want or we're striving for things that we think you want. And all you really want for us is to know your love. And that changes everything, Lord. There's just something about us coming face to face with all that you've done for us, all that you've given us, that radically reshapes our lives and our hearts. Lord, this morning in this place, may we experience your grace. May we experience a liberation from our selfishness and our irreligion. May we experience a a liberation from our religiosity and may we enter into the grace of God. We pray in your name. Amen.